Hello and welcome to A History of Christian Theology. My name is Chad Kim. With me this week will be Tom Velasco and Trevor Adams as we move into Book 6 of St. Augustine's Confessions. Um, this week we'll be discussing in depth uh, St. Ambrose, St. Monica, and uh, St. Augustine and St. Ambrose's view of Scripture. Um, I think this will be a very interesting episode for those of you who wonder how the Church Fathers understood the, their Scriptures, um, as well as it'll look at Augustine's relationship to his mom and how she interacted with Ambrose, who was the preacher who basically uh, led Augustine back into his Christian faith. Um, so I hope that you enjoy this episode. Uh, if you do, please rate us, review us on iTunes. Uh, we want to thank Matt Heider, who has supported us on Patreon. And just would remind you all that if you could just give one or two dollars, if every one of you gave one or two dollars on Patreon, that would support our costs for hosting this podcast. Um, so this episode is going to be, uh, we recorded for well over two hours. Um, this episode will be released into two parts, um, the first hour or so this week, and then in about two weeks we'll be releasing the second one. Uh, it's been a busy first couple of weeks in the semester for Tom, Trevor, and I, so I think it'd be best if we break up these episodes and give you a little bit every two weeks. And Tom will be traveling to Italy as well, um, so it'll be harder to record with him in the next couple of weeks. Uh, we hope that you enjoy the podcast. If you have any comments or questions, do please uh, message us on Facebook, uh, on our Facebook page, and like us, and then uh, let us know what you think. So uh, here is book six. Yeah, we're doing book six. We'll probably get through uh, mostly book six, maybe some of book seven today. Uh, this is a re-recording of a podcast, which we did um, a little bit back. Uh, because somehow the format in which we were recording uh, sped everything up and it was an unusable file. It was basically so corrupted that I couldn't get anything out of it. So we are starting again, and we have a whole new um, site that we're using to record this podcast. So I think it'll actually be a clearer sound. Um, and uh, yeah, I think this, this improvement will really make the sound quality better um, so you can hear our mellifluous voices much more clearly. Um, <laughs> and, um, yeah, so, uh, your, our words can just cascade over you in their beauty. Um, just like, uh, as if we were listening to, uh, St. Ambrose from the bishop's yeah. chair, um, which is, uh, which is basically where we kind of want to get started, I think in book six. So, um, as we did a little bit in book five, um, Augustine has made his way, uh, to Milan, so he's taken a chair of rhetoric, um, and he's left by book six. He's decided to leave the Manichees. We we talked a little bit about Faustus and how he was unimpressed with Faustus, and uh, basically sort of was beginning to see some faults in the Manichaean system, um, which was for him it was too concerned with the material um, and uh, gave him um, some excuse for his sin. Um, and now he's, he's, he's just, he's not sure where he sits, uh, but he loves to listen to Ambrose. And that's where we start in book six. Well, at the end of book five and the beginning of book six, he's just so impressed with the great Rhetor Ambrose. Yeah. And um, Monica has followed him to Milan. Oh yeah. That's his right. mother. Yeah. Monica has followed him to Milan. I was going to say also, um, you know, and I've mentioned this to to you guys both before, but we we do need to do a little bit on Ambrose to give people a little bit of background on him at some point. Maybe interrupting some of our Augustinian readings, not necessarily this book, but before we move on to too much other stuff, and give everybody some Ambrose because Ambrose, of course, does 
precede him in that sense, um, and enormously important figure in church history. That's right. True. Yeah. So he, I mean, just to, um, well, yeah, so there's, we could start, uh, we could start talking a little bit about, um, we could, well, let's talk about, uh, so he, he, he begins to, um, sit under Ambrose and he talks about the kindness of Ambrose, um, to him, even though he's not a Christian, um, and talks about his ability to, um, uh, to, to speak to non-Christians. And he's just so impressed. Um, I, you know, I, um, well, he, yeah, anyway, he's, he's always very impressed, um, um, with, with Ambrose, uh, who, um, I considered him to be quite the lucky man in worldly terms for authorities revered him. Um, uh, but he's, he's confused by his celibacy. Um, so, so Ambrose, like many, um, like many preachers and, and uh, sort of priests in the church, uh, he decided to choose a path of, um, of celibacy, which is not required um, at this period, um, but it is what a lot of priests choose to do. Um, so we get into the actual requirement of celibacy much later. Uh, but, but Ambrose um, is sort of an interesting character. Um, he, he says that um, he would sit for – well, so when he wasn't preaching, he would sit for long periods of silence. I know that we discussed this a bit in the last podcast, um, but uh, uh, Augustine would go to, to hear, to, dis- to listen uh, – well, he would go to hear um, Ambrose, and then he would want to t- chat with him. Uh, but he never wa- – but, but Ambrose basically wouldn't talk to him, and there's some sort of – uh, discussion about why he wouldn't, um, but but Augustine is Im- impressed by uh, how Ambrose would sit for long periods of silence, um, and it says in in six um, six three three we used to sit for long periods of silence. Who would who would presume to intrude on someone so intent? Um, and he would uh, yet his voice and tongue remained silent while he would scan over the pages, and his heart would scrutinize the meaning of the scripture. So that was how he would read. And this was really impressive uh, to Augustine because it appears that in the ancient world, more often than not, people would actually read aloud. Okay. I'm going to, I'm going to back but up I'll let a you guys bit. jump I'm gonna, in. I'm going to back up and just kind of let everybody know who Ambrose is not without going into too much detail. I know we've referenced him before, okay, sorry. but he's like, we cannot emphasize enough just how radically important this guy is. I mean, if you think of, superstar preachers in America today, multiply that by like 10. I mean, he was an immensely important figure politically. And there's a lot of stuff we can say about him, but uh, I mean, just kind of like a, like to kind of emphasize his political importance. He, at one point in his career, excommunicated the emperor Theodosius and the emperor Theodosius under that ban of excommunication actually stepped down as emperor and underwent penance so that he could be welcomed back in the church, which is actually one of kind of the most important moments in church history, uh, because that demonstrated church's authority over the state, uh, which really a lot of people kind of think of it as one of those moments that ushered in the middle ages when the church becomes kind of the single most powerful entity in Europe, which is a radically different thing from what had happened, well, what was going on even 150 years before when Christians were being uh, persecuted, and not even 100 years before that when 
they were just being tolerated. I mean, when Constantine converts, only 5% of the empire is Christian. So there's a radical shift here. And Ambrose is one of, if not the most famous of the Christian leaders in the world at this time. And he's certainly one of the most gifted as well, as far as an orator, a speaker, and kind of what Chad was referencing there. Uh, Augustine shows up here in Milan and he starts listening to this guy teach. And he believes in Ambrose, he has found the teacher that he really wants. Having, and Chad already referenced a second ago, rejected Faustus, not not being interested any longer in that Manichae teacher. He's looking for something new. And in Ambrose, he kind of finds it. And there's a lot in this book or in this section that we're reading today that kind of references Ambrose's virtues, uh, which, which Augustine praises and how really that was enormous in terms of drawing Augustine uh, towards towards the faith. I should also add that, you know, Augustine technically, I mean, he's not a believer at this point, but that would have been a much more concrete thing in those days than in a lot of evangelical churches today. In evangelical churches today, people will reference non-believers and they'll often mean different things. Like there are some people who are clearly unbelievers because they're atheist or maybe they ascribed to some other worldview of some sort. But there are people who come to church, might even call themselves Christians that lots of religious leaders, Christians, uh, pastors, elders, teachers might think of as not really Christians. But in Augustine's day, it would have been a much more concrete thing. Augustine was a seeker. He was coming to read the scriptures to learn, but he had not been baptized because you were just not considered a Christian in the church until you had been catechized and baptized. Um, and so Augustine is going through that basic process at this time. Yeah. And he says, and I really related to this, uh, he says, I was not yet ready to pray with groaning humility for your help. My impulse was for intellectual challenge. I itched for argument. And so it was like, he wasn't yet prepared to really be, um, humbled yet. And so he maybe wasn't even prepared for Ambrose. Like he wanted it's, it's almost like you wanted to argue with Ambrose, but didn't quite get the chance because Ambrose, as we mentioned, was often busy. And then when he wasn't busy, he was reading mm-hmm. silently. Yeah, that's yeah, I like that. I mean, I, for me, it was something I related to a lot, having served in a pastorate at a megachurch. It definitely conveys this idea that Ambrose was so well-loved, so famous, that like he was constantly having to tend to the needs of people. And that when he had a free moment, he tried to get away and read, but people would still come and they would even watch him read, uh, you know, just to just to watch him read. So it's like that's the, like this cult of personality that is kind of popping up around him. But one thing I did that did strike me about that, Trevor, that you just referenced. And and I honestly, guys, we may reference some things from two podcasts ago because I can't remember entirely what we recorded in that last podcast that was lost and what came from a previous podcast. But there, it does talk about Ambrose reading silently, like you just referenced Trevor. And uh, he talks about that Mm -hmm. as if that's weird, right? He's like, Ambrose would actually read without speaking, uh, which was strange. And, and because apparently the practice in that day was that when you read, you tended to read aloud, which I don't know, just kind of one of those quinky dinks that, struck me as odd. Yeah, it was, it was a strange part. He's like, the fact that he noted it 
that he was silent. I was just like, yeah, so? You mean how you read? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, um, to continue on um, thinking a little bit about what made uh, Ambrose so influential to Augustine. So, I mean, one of them is sort of the humility that, uh, uh, that Ambrose seemed to show by he did tend to people's needs right so tom talks about them coming and wanting to talk to him he was mostly available he wasn't entirely available to augustine and this may be because he was associated uh with the hearers um but but when he but one thing that so you know so there's that part about ambrose's character uh, was that he was always attending to the needs of his people and there's a whole long section which we may get into in a minute when we switch to monica where he uh talks with monica and encourages her to live her life a little bit differently um or at least to practice her faith a little bit differently and all you know she's just a North African woman who shows up in Milan um, and we get from Ambrose this great care for her um, and for the health of her faith. But before we get to to that, I did I want I mean, I was just thinking about major things that influence the life of Augustine and really change his whole outlook. And as I said before, the um, the way that the Manichees read scripture was very different from the way that the, the Christians read scripture. Um, and and there seems to be this influ- emphasis on um, a great battle between good and evil. Um, and, and Augustine says that things were um, – he talks a lot about the physicality um, of Manichaean religion. Um, but – he, uh, but but Ambrose would preach on the Old Testament, and the Old Testament was always sort of confusing to Augustine, and um, and so he couldn't quite figure out how to read the Old Testament. As we uh, as we spoke before in one of the previous podcasts, we talked about the difference between customs versus universal laws, um, and so Augustine was always sort of confused by reading the Old Testament and not knowing what was sort of custom and what was sort of a universal law. And, uh, but, but Ambrose brings this point out. He says in, um, book six, four, six, I was delighted to hear Ambrose when preaching to the people, often urgently recommending this as the rule, the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. Um, so that's a quote from second Corinthians three, six. Um, and then Augustine goes on, he took away the mystical veil and opened the spiritual sense of things, which seemed according to the letter to inculcate what was unreasonable. He did not say anything that offended me, although I still did not know whether what he said was true. Uh, but anyway, there is this uh, great difference from for Augustine once he hears this principle. Ah, okay, the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. And it opens up um, a deeper reading and a deeper meaning in the Old Testament for him. And I'll stop there and let someone else jump in. Yeah. But that's, this that's is a, a big moment okay. for him. Yeah, it's so, I'm, oh, no, sorry, I'm sorry. sorry. This, this is one of those things where – you know, I mean, this is something that is still an interesting issue to discuss, right? I mean, because at the end of the day, the question of to what degree or in what ways are should different passages of Scripture be taken literally um, has a huge impact on the way that we can describe or discuss or defend our faith, right? Um, there's no doubt that certain parts are, that not just certain parts, many of it, probably most of it is clearly intended to be taken literally, but there's a lot of stuff in the Old Testament in particular that Ambrose is going to follow in the tradition of the Alexandrian fathers that we talked about um, in trying to say that certain things like, and we brought this up before, the Canaanite genocide 
God's command for the Jews to kill every man, woman, and child, and so forth, uh, was not meant to be a literal thing. It was meant to be a figurative thing. And I do hope everybody can just pick up on the fact that if that were true, which, I mean, I'm not saying it is, by the way, I'm just saying if that were true, it is so much easier to defend and even understand certain parts of the Bible uh, if that allegorical interpretation is is meant to be applied. Of course, the downside is, is that if the allegorical interpretation is meant to be implied in passages like that, why wouldn't it be used to interpret other passages, such as the death and resurrection of Jesus? And so you could literally undermine massive components of our faith if you took that at a kind of a, a global sense. But all this to say, Augustine hears these from Ambrose and he goes, oh, okay, well, this book might not be as silly as I had heretofore thought. Uh, I mean, because remember, he had just thought yeah, that these things were bad because of those because of those passages of scripture. And so now he's second guessing that. Sorry, Trevor. Yeah, he's, he. no, it's okay. I was just going to add to what you're saying because he says, uh, I was relieved, too, that I no longer looked with a jaundiced eye on the ancient law and the prophets. I had treated them as nonsense when I attributed to your holy men views that they did not really hold. So it sounds like what, and then and then it goes on to get to that quote from Ambrose about the letter uh, killing while the spirit gives life. So it, it sounds like, yeah, there was something in specifically the Old Testament, maybe a few things in the Old Testament that he found um, jarring or it says, I guess, kind of maybe foolish or nonsense, um, as my translation says, nonsense. He treated them as nonsense. But it has to do with, he thinks, views that he thought the ancients held. So I think like our current day problems with the Old Testament, at least what most um, modern and contemporary people seem to be dealing with, are things like the Canaanite, or, or Canaanite, sorry, uh, genocide. Whereas, uh, you know, obviously it's not specifically mentioned here. That may have been one of his issues, but it's also he thinks that basically that the the holy men, so it would have been those who wrote the law and then the prophets, thought they held ridiculous views, which is really interesting. I wonder if it's in light of his sort of, philosophical the philosophical milieu of the time or what but well he addresses a few of those chad right i mean in a few books ago and i'm i'm actually drawing a little bit of a blank as to some of those further philosophical complaints i know it has to do with the flesh part of it right i mean and manichae's views on those things yeah he, yeah he does even later in the passage uh mention like the uh spiritual things being conceived as being entirely non-material and how such a thing could manifest itself in a human person like Christ and uh, eventually, but anyway, no, no, but go on. Yeah. Um, I, you know, I, th I mean, I think it's always as Tom, when I was listening to Tom speak, I was just thinking about the, the difficulty of balance here. Um, and Augustine is sort of recording his um, he's a, recording what he you know how he felt at that moment when he heard this the letter kills but the spirit gives life and Augustine goes I don't want to say he goes back and forth on this throughout his whole life but he definitely um, 
this opens up a way for him to read things. Um, and so you can see him, sort of the vigor of youth here. He's like, well, maybe it's all spiritual. And I don't think that's what he ultimately thought. But it just, you know, uh, it, it, it gave him a window into saying there's more for me to look into than I previously considered. So whether or not we want to go all the way with the Alexandrians or something in terms of, you know, uh, let's just look for deeper mystical truths at every page. Um, I, I think for Augustine, it was just it was kind of like a key to unlock a door um, and see that there was a greater depth than he'd ever imagined. Um, so I, I don't think, you know, because he'll write he'll end up writing three different commentaries on Genesis um, and at least two of them he calls a literal interpretation of Genesis ad literam. So he doesn't give up the letter. Uh, altogether it's not like he gives up believing that there was a historical no and i didn't i didn't Um, think he did i um and i didn't even necessarily think that ambrose went that far either but i do think ambrose ends up being more allegorical than augustine will finally set right i mean isn't that the yeah that's right so all I was just I was just trying to highlight the fact that this is I think you know rather than read this as sort of like his fix you know a fixed principle for how to interpret scripture or something it was just sort of like the first time you hear someone who gives you uh, you know just opens up a whole new door and you're not sure where all it'll lead but you're just so excited um, that there's there oh there's a different way of doing this um, than he had previously considered that's kind of what. Um, I was referring to. And I do think that for Augustine, it, it is critical that the scriptural text is, is a way to, you know, it, it is the conveyor of God to man in a way. Um, it is one of the ways in which God uh, is, um, is brought present to humans. It is how God speaks um, to us. And so what the, the text is still a kind of, um, how do I want to say this? Um, it is it, it's still kind of a conduit, a medium to return back to God. Um, so what what he never considered before, he thought it was just a set of of, of like weird stories and principles that had that sort of maybe had some connection to God, but they didn't help lead you to a spiritual um, connection to God. And so I think what for me this is this is a way of for a way of Augustine saying oh I get it I'm supposed to read these things and learn more about the God who is present while I read them or is present to me in reading them um, and so it's a it's a way for him to um, uh, you know and ultimately it's it's going to lead to uh, this sort of mystical union um, that we call that's called the ascents in a lot of the popular literature um, where he'll be sort of unified to God and so. Uh, the, 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 he sees in this text um, that, that God is conveying himself um, so that Augustine can, um, you know, uh, understand better who God is. And, and you know, we'll, we haven't, he doesn't say that in this passage per se, but part of what Augustine believes uh, by, that he com- comes to realize by reading scripture is the way that God chooses to convey to humanity um, himself in scripture is in a humble um, is in the humble speech of scripture. Um, so that is Augustine will have part of what this meant to understand God in the scriptures was you had to understand that you, you as a human had to humble yourself before the divine. Um, and we have an example of that in the incarnation in the person of Jesus Christ. So not only, um, does, does God require that of us, but that God does that first and shows us the way. And then ultimately you can sort of move beyond the words themselves 
um, so that you could be unified um, to God. But the, the words are meant to be a cure. He does say this, like the scriptural text, he talks about it like it's a medicine. Um, and, and so it has to heal the wounds of his, his sin-sick soul. Hmm. I wonder if he suffered from a problem that people still suffer from today, which was in his early, in these early years that he's describing here, he just sort of read the, I mean, to say it real basically, of course, this kind of goes with the quote, but he just read the Old Testament on way to surface of a level, like just going about thinking, oh, you know, Jacob and Abraham and these people, these are the heroes of the faith, but look at the stupid things they think and do or whatever. Whereas I think now maybe we've at least to a certain extent already sort of come to terms with those things, but it's interesting that it's been, it's been like a journey because Christianity's had this, un-Jewishification for taking place for the last couple hundred years. And so there's been this sort of um, reading and absorbing and taking in and still holding on to of the Old Testament, but reading it in a more, I guess, realistic way. I I don't know if that's helpful, but. Well, I mean, the un-Jewification, Jewishification or, you know, how Jewish to read the Old Testament or how Jewish is Christianity is a, an extremely <laughs> yeah. vexed and difficult question. Oh, yeah. The issue of whether or not to interpret more literally versus allegorically, that's a question that Jews themselves ask in different at different eras in time and different right. Jewish cultures have answered that differently. Right. I mean, so. Um, you, you have a rabbinical tradition, but you also have a Hellenistic tradition and the Hellenistic tradition certainly seems to, uh, you know, lean more kind of following Philo lean more towards that allegorical interpretation. And I think our, uh, I mean, the Alexandrians were influenced by those guys, right? Yeah, they are for, for sure. Right. Yeah, we read that in Clement. We read that in uh, Clement of Alexandria. We read it in Origen. And they even knew allegorizers of the Old Testament that we didn't know. Um, I mean, I, I can't think of their names, but I remember uh, when we were doing the Clement podcasts, he would reference these Jewish guys um, that we don't – basically the only reason we even know who they are is because Clement knew them. Um, and, uh, yeah, so there was like, there was a whole library. And that's, you know, that's where Origen would go. Origen didn't think what he was doing was – um, in some way un-Jewish, um, the way that we would look at it now. Like he didn't know Qumran, uh, the Dead Sea Scrolls, um, and and he doesn't know the rabbinic tradition, uh, Gamaliel and uh, some of these others that uh, that even Paul will reference. Um, uh, so it doesn't it doesn't seem that uh, Origen is as familiar with some of that stuff. Um, nevertheless, he thought he was reading in a Jewish way because the Jewish people that he knew read similarly. Um, and so it wouldn't have even it would have been a question that he wouldn't know how to respond to about the Jewishness of the text versus the Greekness of the text. It was all the same to him. Um, hey, as I Tom, you know, pointed years out. unless there's this something a, else somebody wants to say on this. Well, this is related to the passage because it's part of this passage and it's a really brief, uh, simple little point. It's more just I thought it was funny from like a sort of epistemology point of view. But often today in philosophy, we always give math as an example of something we're really sure of, like they're necessary truths. We know them a priori and all this stuff. 
And he says, I wanted a certainty about unseen things like my certainty that three and seven make 10. And it, when I first read that, I thought, oh, so he thinks like math's really certain like we do today. But then he said, I was not so simple as to think that even such mathematical truths can be fully understood. But I wanted at least that kind of assurance about material things too subtle for our senses to apprehend or about spiritual things, which I could not conceive as being entirely non-material. And I was like, oh, that's interesting. He says, I'm not so simple as to think that I can really fully understand uh, math. Anyway, it's just more of a, I thought it was kind of funny. I was like, we've definitely sort of changed epistemically, but kind of add on to what Trevor just said. I mean, that's largely, even today, that's just following in our platonic roots, right? I mean, Plato certainly asserts those that that certainty to mathematical truths, right? So, and I, I think that anybody yeah. following in the platonic True. tradition is going to have that sense, which is kind of funny because it does go a little bit against kind of the more common sense re- approach. I think your average, quote, man on the street end quote, is going to, if asked what he's most certain about, talk about the things he sees in his immediate, like, you know, I don't, I don't think the go-to would be math. I think, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I think the go-to for math is for philosophers. And I think that's largely because of the platonic tradition, I think. But yeah. Yeah. Anyway, the the shift I wanted to make was actually something you referenced Chad, so I just want to come back to it, and that is the interaction between Monica and Ambrose. Um, so going back to, mm. to books, we're in book mm-hmm. six, so uh, two, two, right? This is after Monica comes up, remembering she's North African, and she's now living in Milan, so northern Italy. She says, in accordance with my mother's custom in Africa, she had taken to the memorial shrines of the saints cakes and bread and wine, but she was forbidden by the janitor. When she knew that the bishop was responsible for this prohibition, she accepted it in so devout and docile a manner that I myself was amazed how easy it was for her to find fault with her own custom rather than to dispute his ban. Okay, so uh, so a couple of things here. She's obviously bringing up this, this practice that she has, which seems pretty ubiquitous amongst old cultures, um, the practice of leaving votive offerings for departed people, right? I am I have a Hispanic background. My dad's from Mexico. And actually, he comes from a part that doesn't, or uh, I don't know, I guess the degree to which they do, but he never has been much to celebrate the Dia de los Muertos holiday. Um, but that's a common holiday where you put shrines up to your old ancestors and you leave kind of votive offerings. And what's going on here is Monica's doing that for the saints in accordance with her, no doubt, North African custom. Like that's what they do. But Ambrose puts a kibosh on that. And, and I, and the implication is, is because it's like, I think pagan idolatry, basically saying you don't do these kinds of things. And then Augustine just uses it as an example to show her devotedness to Ambrose. Right. And I go a little bit further down. Um, when she learned that the famous preacher and religious leader had ordered that no such offerings were to be made, even by those who acted soberly. And I think, Chad, when we recorded before, you had a comment on that. So I'll, I'll, I'll uh, point that out to you before we go, or, uh, you know, you can re- reference back to it. But she said, to avert any pretext for intoxication being given to drinkers, 
and because the ceremonies were like meals to propitiate departed spirits and similar to heathen superstition. So what I was so fascinated by here is we're watching in real time syncretism, right? And syncretism is is when you take one religion and blend it into other customs and practices that are not native to that religion, so to speak. And so what he's basically, you know, like what Ambrose is doing is here Ambrose is almost being a little like a bit of a fundamentalist. And he's kind of saying, look, we can't do this old cultural practice because this is a heathen or pagan practice. And I, and I like, I think that's so interesting because of course, in general, Roman Catholicism over the years will evolve in such a way that it will allow many of those, like the Dia de los Muertos is, uh, is, uh, is sanctioned in Mexico by the Catholic church. Um, and so there's this tension that just is always there in the church between people who are trying to kind of more conservatives, maybe who are trying to hold for the, for like maybe original ways or the old ways. And then you've got kind of this, this change that is go- happening through syncretism where other kinds of practices come in and, 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 you know, it's like people are always wondering, hey, where did we get our ideas for Easter and Christmas? And and where do some of these practices come from where you pray for the dead or pray to saints? And the reality is, for those of you listening who are maybe hoping that we can answer that question, the reality is for many of these things, we can't answer the question because it didn't happen from a theologian coming in and saying, okay, guys, now we pray to departed saints or now we celebrate Christmas. Well, I guess Christmas is a bad example because Constantine actually did do that. Yeah. But, it, but for many did of these things, <laughs> it's a slow evolution that just kind of creeps in in various parts of, of a culture and doesn't go to all places all at once. And it's really kind of hard to identify where it came from. So I, I just wanted to kind of reference that because I thought it was an interesting yeah, point. No, I, I, the part that interested me was um, he, yeah, he didn't want Ambrose didn't want there to be, uh, you know, food and wine taken to the shrines because it was too much like the pagans cults of the dead. But then, so it says taught thus, she took around to the shrines, a heart full of prayers, even purer than before, instead of a basket full of fruits of the earth. And this made her better able to give what she had to the needy. I just kind of liked that passage. So that's like, she still did go to the, I guess the martyr shrines and pray, but then, but she wasn't offering like physical things to them, which seemed to be the important uh, thing that was unique or similar to the pagan cults of the dead. But yeah, inter- it's really interesting. Yeah, I think uh, so. A, a couple things that I would continue to add there, and I'm glad we're going back to Monica um, because if you follow us on Twitter, um, which I'm trying to use more often now, uh, we I, I used a quote from here about how. Um, Augustine's mother prayed for him, uh, and uh, ultimately she she believed that um, she'd been given a vision from God that she would be able to see her son become a Christian before she died, which of course happens, uh, although we haven't gotten there yet. So Monica, Santa Monica, is a wonderful figure in this text, but she's she's not a overly simplistic person. That is, like you know, Augustine does love his mother, and people have talked about his relationship to her in exaggerated sort of Oedipal terms. Um, and I think that's a little overwrought and overdone. Uh, but he also presents her as a, as a human, like she has flaws. So in this case, she's practicing this old pagan ritual of giving 
food to ancestors and to the shrines of the martyrs. But Augustine will say actually later in book nine uh, that she might have herself have once had a problem with drinking. So this passage doesn't actually uh, mention her as drinking too much. Um, personally, it talks about people drinking too much at these um, gatherings of people when you celebrated the martyrs or ancestors or something. Um, but, um, uh, but, but yeah, it, it, she does seem to have a history of maybe drinking too much. Um, and so that's, that is mentioned later on. So she's, I mean, you know, he doesn't talk about her at great length in the, in this book. Like we don't have her whole story. Um, but, but she's not, you know, she's not painted in absolutely pristine terms as if she's never done anything wrong. Uh, but we mentioned, uh, Ambrose relationship to, uh, Santa Monica, uh, to, to Monica. And I, I wanted to, uh, add this, uh, one f- sentence too, from, uh, two, two towards the end. Uh, and he says, Augustine says, so on seeing me, he, that is Ambrose, uh, would often exclaim in praise of her and cra- congratulate me on having such a mother. Um, and, uh, which I just thought was kind of fun. Uh, you know, again, it shows Ambrose's awareness of family relationships in the, in his church. Um, he's willing to praise her for being, you know, she did something wrong, I guess, you know, and, and, uh, and she accepts the correction of Ambrose and then, but he still praises her. Um, and he still tells, uh, Augustine how great of a mom he has. Um, and so I think, I think Monica is a very critical pick, uh, figure in this whole book, not only because, um, Augustine, you know, ta- like she, you know, she's referenced, uh, quite a bit and she prays for Augustine. Uh, but, but he, he also looks at her as a kind of example as he becomes a Christian. Um, he has a few different people who help him on the path, but I think it's important that one of them is his uneducated mother. Um, and we'll get to that when we get to book nine a little bit on uh, when they sort of seem to come into the presence of God in this ascent, um, this mystical union that they have. Um, but um, but yeah, so Augustine is not overly intellectual. Augustine is not only he, – he recognizes that the Christian faith is bigger than just his intellectual journey. Um, it's not only about him and what he knows or doesn't know or, you know, it, it, I just want to make that point that, that he recognizes the fullness of the church that includes people even like yeah, his I sort of rural North there, African Chad. mother. Um, you called her Saint Monica. And of course, um, you know, I would imagine a lot of our listeners are not Roman Catholic, but for those who, you know, aren't familiar, you know, sainthood is is like a distinction that is granted in the Catholic church without going into a lot of detail about what is involved in that. But one of the things I think so interesting is it seems to me that Monica achieved sainthood largely because her son loved her so much and, and because of his feeling of her impact in his life, right. Um, That he makes her famous by telling these stories. I mean, I, I would imagine had Augustine grown up to not be anybody of particular note, she would have never been anybody of particular note. Yes, I'm pretty sure her sainthood is largely dependent on her prayers and visions yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so, uh, so here's mother, the thing mothering is, of Augustine. Is what I kind of like about this is is that in Monica you have almost like a picture of every mother, right? I mean, you basically she ultimately is given this credit and and sainthood, so to speak, not because she was a famous uh, you know, uh, uh, ascetic, not because 
She was a well-known, you know, shaker-upper, so to speak, of things within the church, but because she was a faithful mom who prayed for her son a lot. And and I think there are a lot of faithful moms out there who do that, you know? And and I just think that even in a sense, her fame and her 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 the fact that she's well known as she is is kind of almost like a little credit to them, so to speak. Like uh like uh I don't know. It's a, just an honoring of that calling in life, I guess. Yeah, no, it's cool. Um, well, uh, the one one other thing that so to continue on to this question um, of of the relationship between um, well that I, I sort of started talking about about educated and uneducated people. Um, just to reiterate a point that I made earlier in um, in let's see, this is um, five nine. Uh, or five eight, almost five nine. Um, Augustine says this about scripture. Um, he says their their authority appeared more venerable and more deserving of inviolable trust because of the way they were available for all to read, while still reserving the nobility of their inner mystery for a deeper discernment. They, that is the scriptures, presented themselves in the clearest of terms. Um, in Latin, it is the humilimo uh, gendere loquendi, which I uh, is important for for me, but. Um, and, and my work, but they presented themselves in this very humble way of speaking, uh, the, the most everyday style of speaking to all kinds of people. And yet they exercised the concentration of serious thinkers. Thus scripture gathered everyone into one inclusive embrace. It also brought a few to you by the narrow way, yet many more than if it had not possessed such a supremely preeminent authority and drew no crowds, uh, within its bosom of holy, Humility. I was reflecting and you were with me. I was sighing and you listened to me. I was vacillating and you directed me. I was traveling along the broad path of the world and you did not abandon me. Um, so that is, uh, you know, I'm quoting uh, again from, from this passage where Augustine's talking about the nature of the scriptures. Um, and, you know, I, I sometimes, uh, this is maybe going a little bit uh, deeper into uh, sometimes people will say in my program and, and in theology, they want to do theology uh, for the academy and for the church, or they want to think about the the broader implications of theology. But that, you know, and sometimes I don't know what they mean by that. What I think that they mean is something like, I just hope people in church read what I write. Um, <laughs> and yeah. and um, because then I'll have a wider audience. Uh, but what, what is what is sort of interesting about what Augustine does here is he he so how he understands like what he he has this he wants a deep penetration into the the mysteries of God and to who God is and he wants to know God as deeply and intimately as possible but he knows that for him that requires this this intellectual journey uh, but the scriptures are all embracing um, there there is something in this text that reaches. Uh, someone from a broad spectrum of of the world as Augustine knew it, um, from North Africa, to, from you know, to, from from rural backward North Africa to the center of the world. Milan at the time was um, uh, very preeminent, um, and 
So yeah, so I just think that's an interesting way to think about what the scriptures do is they sort of they sort of gather uh, everyone to them in the Christian church. And that's why they're so critical um, from, you know, whatever it means to be a Christian. Um, it means that you have you find this text binding in some way uh, that God communicates to you in it. Um, and God can communicate through scripture um, to the likes of Monica um, yeah, as well as one Amber, of the things I think as well of- as Augustine and Amber that I, I think is really interesting in church history is you always have people who kind of step into the foray, who try to bring the scriptures back to that humble place where it can speak to everyone. But then there is a resistance to that. So what I mean by that is really around this time, around Augustine's time, you have St. Jerome uh, who is going to translate the scriptures into Latin uh, and, and his, version of the Latin Bible is going to be called the Vulgate. And it's called the Vulgate because it's for the vulgar. And what I what I mean by that is for the common. That's uh, vulgar nowadays has a negative connotation, but in his day it didn't. The 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 Vulgate was for common people, for normal people. And at the time you had people who were who resisted that. I remember hearing a story, this is anecdotal, but about like a, a group of monks who rioted because of the way that he had translated a certain passage in Jonah. Like people were against uh, these kinds of things happening because they wanted to stick with their old translations. Well, what's going to happen to the Vulgate is eventually the Vulgate is going to become so entrenched that the Catholic Church will not allow any other translation to be used. The Bible just is the Vulgate. And what happens? Along comes Martin Luther. Martin Luther uses some old Greek manuscripts, translates into German for the common man. And not just Luther, but, you know, you had uh, uh, Wycliffe and Tyndall and England. And, and I mean, you have people all over who are taking the scriptures and all of a sudden trying to translate it into the common tongue. Eventually you get the King James Bible, which is gearing towards the same thing. But what happens is, People start to cling to those old translations as if that's the the like God-inspired way to do it. So you still have to this day people who to elevate the King James as if that's like the only legitimate or or real Bible. Uh, and, and they're doing so not recognizing this important principle that at the end of the day, the scriptures were meant to be read by everyone and therefore ought to be written in or, in, or ought to be translated in the common tongue. Heck, the New Testament itself was written in Koine Greek, which was the common language of the day. Uh, I just think that's a beautiful thing about the Bible is that it is meant to reach a broad swath of listeners and readers, not just the educated, not just the upper class, but everybody. And and Augustine picks up on this here beautifully. Yeah, I mean, I think um, from what, as far as I know, uh, whatever writings that we have in Greek from what would be sort of the lower <laughs> classes is the New Testament. <laughs> you know, so, I mean, they're just, you know, they're just our plays and there are philosophers, but there's just almost nothing that exists except for um, maybe a little it's minor inscriptions. They talk about these little things that we, that, that they're found in the desert still. I can't remember the Greek word, word for them, but I mean, in terms of any kind of sustained writing from poor people from the ancient world, um, from, from the lower classes, it is just the New Testament. Hey, just a really quick um, question: Did did what was the story on that in the East? I just realized I know the Western story because I've been told it so many times. But what happened in the East with the 
common language. Oh, and you mean like during the, you mean like the Eastern Orthodox Church? Similar, similar. Yeah, they still, I mean, even to this day, they, what's that? No, no, no. Did Latin? They're doing it with older Greek, did it stay with Latin some or older Greek, Greek version, which I don't know, like what, what people call today the Byzantine text or the, you know, the something along those lines. They have their Greek New Testament. They still read that today, right? That's still the Bible of their church, even though their Greek is nothing at all like what was written then. Well, I shouldn't say nothing at all, but is radically different, right? So when did when did different, different enough. when did Orthodox parishes start doing liturgies though in the language of the people? I have no idea. That's a really well, interesting I mean, question. I just realized then I that know. will also anyway. depend somewhat on what kind of Orthodox church you're talking about, like the Russian Orthodox Church or something along those lines. Uh, my my suspicion is is that the Greek Orthodox are doing liturgies that are very. Uh, very much in old Greek or older Greek, older forms of Greek. You know, I might be wrong on that, but I think that's the case. Well, it's, I mean, when, I mean, I used to take kids to the uh, liturgy of St. John Chrysostom, the divine liturgy of St. John Chrysostom in Boise, Idaho. Um, <laughs> I mean, you know, there you, you they had the Greek and the English, um, but, but yeah, I mean, it was still, um, I don't think that – well, I'd have to think about it, but I don't know if it was an updated text um, to some degree, uh, but it was still recognizable to us when I when I would I would teach the kids Koine and they would yeah. be able to read some of the liturgy. That was, that was kind of the exercise. Um, oh, that's cool. Um, but um, – but yeah, I mean, you know, they, they, and I mean, I've also, you know, I know that there are other, um, there's still, I was at a Syriac Orthodox church where, uh, they still did the liturgy in Syriac, um, in New Jersey, yeah. um, which is crazy, uh, <laughs> that that exists. Um, but yeah, you could, you could still, you know, the, the center part of the, and actually the, uh, the section where we did communion was done in Aramaic. Um, it's, and so you can Dang. still worship in those languages in New Jersey in the 21st century, um, which I think is awesome. And, uh, I mean, it's awesome to some degree, but it's, a uh, yeah, but it brings us back to this question that, that Tom started it all off with, which is, you know, we, we were forever doing a dance between preserving old traditions and customs and also trying to make it available uh, to as many people as possible. And so there's people like me who love the history, who want to be able to read, you know, the Holy Corbono in uh, Aramaic, um, because I think it's cool that that still exists. And I'm glad that there's a people that preserves it. Uh, but, you know, I also know that, you know, my my extended families from rural Louisiana and rural Arkansas, and, you know, there may be some of them who think it's cool that it's in Aramaic, but they're going to want to go to church in English. Um, <laughs> yeah. um, and, and that, and I, and me too. Right. I mean, like, I, you know, ultimately I, it, it can be distracting if it's only an intellectual exercise, right. Um, it can be, um, I can miss the point and make it all about my love of knowledge and language rather than about what, and you know, the quote that I read and we should probably move on after this, but unless you guys have something to add, but the quote that I read, I like that he ends with, you know, he talks about what scripture is for, and then he ends with, I was sighing and you listened to me. I was reflecting and you were with me. So when he's thinking about the scriptures, he's thinking about being being in the presence of God. 
Um, and so what scriptures do is they make God present to us uh, in a way. Um, and and uh, so, yeah, so whatever they're supposed to do, they're supposed to help us come closer to the presence of God. And if they fail to do that, then then something's wrong. And that's when, you know, that's when Jerome does good work and Luther does good work. Um, and also the great irony that that Luther and uh, and Jerome had essentially the same goals, um, and but one was working against the translation of the well, other. Go, well, going back to uh, book six in the section about Ambrose, um, and this is uh-huh. in the my my enumeration may be different, but it's in the section I have labeled number seven. But there's in the second paragraph. So I'm going to, I wanted to, I like this thing because it's related to our talk of scripture. I like this passage. I also just liked it because it just stuck with me. And, but I also wanted to bring it up to ask what your translations read as, uh, since I have this Gary Wills translation, which I don't know if that's good or bad, but uh, he says, you convinced me that I should reprimand those who rejected belief in your sacred writings and praise those who accepted words whose authority you had vindicated among all peoples. Nor should I heed those, this is what I really like, nor should I heed those asking how I know these books to have been given to the human race by the spirit of the one true and all truthful God, since this is just where belief comes in. I've always, (laughs) I really relate to that in a sense, because there's, you do get to points of Christianity where that is sort of the thing you admit to people. You're kind of like, yeah, well, you're sort of told to have faith. I mean, that that is that is admittingly part of it. That's part of the picture, which to you know, which to some um, atheists, maybe some atheists listening to this podcast, that's just the very thing that disturbs them, I guess. But I I don't know. I I really like that. And anyway, and the next section, which is at the start of eight, I also it really stuck with me. He says, while my belief could be stronger at times and weaker at times. Those two points I clung to, that you exist and that you have concern for us, though I was still in the dark about your nature and the path that might turn or return me to you. I just, I just loved that. That was so cool. Cause I've, I've definitely felt that way. Uh, like many times, especially like when I was a freshman in college, I was definitely like, well, I know there's a God and that he cares about me, but that's about all I know at this point. And so anyway, just really, really related to Ambrose here. I think kind of what you're saying, Trevor, is he takes the scriptures to sort of be properly basic almost. Like, it's just like, I take that as axiomatic and then I move Yeah, forward. I mean, he would say, you know, I shouldn't, nor should I heed those asking how I know these books to have come basically from God. Because he goes, because that's just, uh, to put it in exactly the way it is in my translation, uh, um, since this is just where belief comes in and I don't know exactly where, what that word belief translates from or to or whatever, but what it communicated to me was the sort of, um, basically what we would now kind of call faith, a, a faithful belief, like a trusting maybe, uh, rather than just like an exception of the truth of some proposition. But it's just, this is, that's exactly what I'm doing. That's exactly where that comes in. Um, and that, that's kind of the point. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, and so, I mean, the, yeah, he, I, my version doesn't have those exact lines, but I mean, yeah, it's credere to believe or to trust in. 
Um, I mean, that's, that's comes up in, in a lot of these. Um, but I was going to add, I was going to add um, the part, you know, it's, it's interesting. You read a section just above what I read and um, earlier he, there appear. Uh, so but one thing he says in justification, one thing he says in justification of their authority um, and of why they should be basic is he said their authority appeared more venerable and more deserving of inviolable trust because of the way they were available for all to read while still deserving the nobility of their inner mystery for a deeper discernment. So what I, what I take that to be, I take that to be sort of monumental in the history of sort of philosophical thought or educated thought. Um, there was no intention in um, rhetorical or grammatical education and really philosoph philosophical education to make knowledge available to all. Um, philosophy was the purview and especially the kind of philosophical um, you know, like reading the Ennead ads of Plotinus, all of that stuff was for the educated intellectual to come closer to God. There was no intention that this might be freely available to all. Um, you know, the, the Platonists weren't concerned with, I want everyone and all people to be able to get a better knowledge of who God is through, um, our writings. Um, you, you had to go, you know, that, that was not a concern, but for Augustine, it is. And for Augustine, he thinks, if it's going to be true, everyone, uh, that is all people who hear it, whether preached or, or who can read it, need to be able to understand something in it about You God. know, I hadn't, I hadn't thought uh, about that with the Platonists, but yeah, that totally makes sense. And yeah, it kind of shows an elitism that still persists even in academia today that I think people want to sort of overcome, but is found difficult well, so, to overcome. So long as <laughs> yeah. you actually yeah, elevate that's interesting. education and intelligence, you're going to not really be egalitarian, right? Because at the end of the day, you will always have some people more educated than others, and you will always have people with more natural intelligence than others. And you will always have people in rather large groups, actually, who don't have certain rational capacities. You know what I mean? So at the end of the day, the, the, the goal in academia of being egalitarian, I think is kind of like a contradictory goal to the existence of academia to a certain degree. I mean, don't get me wrong. I, I think it's good to try, you know, well, like, you know what I mean? Like, I think it's an inherent good to try to treat everybody the same and to try to respect people at, you know, whatever their backgrounds and things of that nature. And, but I just think that at a certain, to a certain degree, it's going to be something that psychologically is just contradictory in the way we're kind of functioning. Well, I, I get what you're saying, Tom, and I actually do agree, but there is an interesting thing to note, and this is relevant to our talk of scripture, especially since scripture was mostly translated uh, and, or I should say handed down through written word for a very long time. And then before that, it was orally. There is a sense in which there is uh, learning capabilities because we're just now starting to learn of learning disabilities, but there were learning cap uh, capabilities that were favored just purely because it was either orally um, remembered and passed down or because it was then written and read uh, that that did favor a certain group. But now I have a little more hope for maybe some of the, the aims of Augustine uh, of scripture being common to all people because of things like audiobooks And because we're starting to realize people learn differently that 
there's probably a lot of intelligent people that are completely passed over because they had something like dyslexia. You know what I mean? And they could have easily just been a scribe in their time, but, uh, but couldn't be a scribe because, you know, because of the, their dyslexia or some other uh, learning disability that didn't enable them to process basically written or oral words as well as other people, which I, I find, I find that really fascinating because there's definitely a set of skills due to just the efficiency of passing information um, via written text, especially there's like a set of skills that became favored in history. But I think now maybe we can at least come up with some technologies and somewhat overcome that and you well, know, yeah. visually represent things in different yeah, ways. And to be and clear, I think audio progress can and, be yeah. made and has been made in certain ways for sure. And I, I, I totally buy in, I mean, agree hundred percent with what you're saying. Um, that I think that you can, that there are certainly, I mean, with the discovery of many of these learning disabilities, um, you do discover, of course, that there can be intel that there is intelligence present, and that you can learn different ways, and and that uh, of course people are different. And I, and I like that ed- that academia, as in general, is trying to uh, compensate for that, so to speak. I guess more what I was thinking is, nonetheless, academia at its base, you know, idealizes intelligence and. Uh, academic endeavor and academic accomplishment and not all people do. And whether or not, I mean, you can find ways like through this progress to educate everybody, you know, there's still going to be levels of intelligence and levels of accomplishment. So that'll still be present. And lots of people aren't going to want to take part in these anyway, because they don't, value the same things. And what I, I guess what kind of inspired, not inspired, what motivated me to say what I said was when I think about like reading social media and how people so are so quick to turn to uh, insults based on intelligence, right? You're an idiot or moron or, you know, that kind of a thing, how people just kind of throw that out. Oftentimes in places where people, where, where they, of course, are actually at the disadvantage in the argument kind of demonstrating their own lack of awareness. But I, I guess all that to say that because we prioritize intelligence and because we think it matters and is important, that invariably is going to at least make us think of some people as not being intelligent and in that way kind of works against an egalitarian sense to a degree. But I 100% agree with you in terms of the progress and and growth and, and understanding better and finding new ways that people can actually exercise intelligence. Yeah, because certainly you're right that that there will still be some sort of hierarchy purely based on the fact that take away all sort of traditional academic skills and say that you can teach everyone their own way. You still need people to actually want to pay attention. And I think as we've maybe even mentioned before in our discussions, like that still comes down to like the difference between a lot of highly educated people and those that aren't is just that willingness to sit and really want to think hard about something, like go through the mental energy of attention and control, that alone does still create barriers and standards. So, yeah. Well, so the reason I brought it up was to is was not to say that we should only ever think about the lowest common denominator, but he's also talking about the nobility. So the church, because I, you know, I think that because Augustine is thinking about this within the church, he's saying that 
you know, also we should recognize the nobility of scriptures. So he's not denying that there's a excellence to understanding scripture well that should be praised within the church. The church should be able to say, if you're if you're a person who doesn't have the time or inclination or uh, ability to learn all the languages of the church and do the kind of in-depth study that a preach that study that a preacher or a theologian does, you should be you should be able to be thankful that they are part of the same church, that we are one body with those with those gifts. And also the intellectual needs the um, needs the sort of chastening to say, I can't run away with this so much so that I ignore that there is the other half of the church. There's a check on mm. both of us. Um, and there's a check on either side. We should be willing to say, I'm so glad that God gave these people the intelligence to do what they need to do. Um, and then we should also be able to say, and I'm also glad that God um, made the scriptures available in such a way that anyone can find in them some of the character of who God is, um, whether or not you have all the capabilities, uh, you know, the intellectual capabilities. So I think to me, that's what makes the difference between broader academia and a Christian theologian. Um, the Christian theologian should be able to say, we hold all of this together as one body. Um, and ultimately we, we do so because of who God is. Um, that is in Jesus Christ, we have a God, um, who comes to us humbly first, um, and also returns to glory. Um, and so both aspects of that, um, teach us about the character of God and about the character of the people that God has created, um, such that they're different. They're not equal in the, you know, the strictest egalitarian sense, um, but they're all important and they're all critical. Um, so Christians shouldn't hate education, um, and nor should they hate those that don't yeah, have it. I agree. I, th I think. Yeah. No. Mm. Thank you for listening to A History of Christian Theology. I'm Chad Kim. We'll be back next week with Tom Velasco and Trevor Adams for the second half of our conversation on Book 6 of Augustine's Confessions. Uh, please like us on iTunes uh, and rate and review us. Like us on Facebook and rate and review us on iTunes. Thank you so much and have a great week.